Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Tafera Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio Show for Teferet, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now. And we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.teferitjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own writings, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is Caroline Levitt. Levitt is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of numerous books, many of which have been options for film, translated into different languages, and condensed in magazines. She's an incredibly prolific writer, and in addition to her novels, she frequently publishes essays, stories, book reviews, and articles. Levitt is the recipient of numerous honors and accolades, including first prize in Red Book Magazine's Young Writers Contest and a New York Foundation of the Arts Award. As well, her work has appeared on the best books list of countless magazines and newspapers. Tonight, we'll be focusing on Levitt's most recent novel, The Stunning Page Turner, Is This Tomorrow? Of the novel, Joyce Maynard states, Reading this story is a memorable and moving journey and one that, for those who don't already love her work, reveals Levitt to be a brave and humane writer who also understands what keeps us turning the pages. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, thank you for coming on with us. I've been looking forward this, to this for a really long time, and I'm so excited to be talking to you now. <laughs> it's a delight. Um, so I, I just wanted to start by asking you, you said that your writing always starts with a question or questions that haunt you. So I'm wondering what hauntings were the impetus for Is This Tomorrow? Oh, well, is this tomorrow? I was really interested in the whole issue of how does an outsider find community and belonging, especially when you're in a community that doesn't want you. And that's something that's haunted me for a long time because you could say that I was a quintessential outsider from the time that I was five years old. My um, my father moved us into this suburbs, the suburbs of Waltham, Massachusetts, when I was just five years old. And um, it was during the early 1960s, and we were living in this very hard scrabble kind of little town. And we were actually the only Jewish family. Hello, and on welcome the to the Ferret Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard. Sorry, and welcome to the started looping back through. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So we were the only Jewish family in, 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 a, in a suburb of Christians, and it was really difficult for me. I, I thought I was going to have friends, but all these kids would run by me and say, my dad says that your family killed Christ and I can't play with you. And in school, uh, the teachers would routinely give tests about 
you know, who were the apostles and all these questions about Jesus. I just couldn't answer, and there was nothing that my mother could do about it because back then people didn't really sue. So I just grew up thinking I'm an outsider. I just don't belong. And it wasn't until I grew up and then I moved to New York that I began to realize that there was actually a whole lot of diversity out there and also that I began to realize that being an outsider and being different could actually be a really good thing and not something to be so ashamed about. That's wonderful. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more about um, in, in what ways it can be a good thing or a blessing? I think it's a blessing because it actually makes you stronger. I had to, when I was a child, I really had to learn how to entertain myself a lot because I didn't have a lot of people to play with. So I had a lot of time to read. And the more I read stories, the more I wanted to write stories. And as I got older, as I, as I became a teenager, I began to realize that being different sometimes would attract attention to me that other people wouldn't get, that you know, some people would like it that I look differently than everybody else and I sounded differently than everybody else and I did different things. And I began to feel that you know, maybe people who want to conform or who want to all be like the norm, maybe they're just afraid to really be who they are because they're sort of safety in numbers. And I've sort of made that my mission as I've become older and older that, you know what, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to present. I'm not going to try to be anybody else. And I think there is a certain gift in that because when you're forced to look at what really makes you you and how that does or does not fit into other people's expectations, you're sort of forced to become stronger if you ever want to have any happiness or peace in your life. And I think also that once you do become stronger and you do feel happy and who you are and your differences, I think actually more people respond to that and they like that. And so you're actually helping other people in that way. Mm, that's nice. Um, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me is that, well, it's this magical thing that happens with writing where these sort of autobiographical elements morph and take new shape, and um, they're, they're telling the same fundamental truths, but uh, they're also transformed to illuminate them in a new way. And um, in is this tomorrow, obviously we've got several different uh, variations of the theme of the outsider. Um, and I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about how, how that worked for you, how you, like sort of, you know, what was autobiographically relevant and how did that transform in the novel? Mm-hmm. Well, when I was growing up, there was actually one family on our block who were more outcast than I was. And it was a divorced woman. It was, a, if you can look at that, it was a divorced woman, and she had a daughter who was my age, and she had a young. The daughter had a younger brother, and all of our kids in the neighborhood were told not to go over to that woman's house because she was divorced, which was really shocking in the '60s, and she had a lot of boyfriends, and that was really shocking. And also, the biggest shocker was that this woman dared to sun herself in a white bikini in front of the house, which all our mothers thought was really. <laughs> terrible. So I never listened. You know, I never, never listened. I always went over that house. And I really liked this woman. She was, you know, everybody was saying, oh, she's dirty. She's disgusting. She smokes. She drinks. 
But I thought for myself that she didn't do any of those things. She was just this very cool mom, you know, and she showed me how to paint my nails and she gave me advice on boys and I really, really liked her daughter. And one of the things that happened is her her daughter told me that she was going to be adopted out of her mom's family and she was going to go live with this wealthy Jewish dentist and move to California. And I thought she was just making it up because who leaves their family? You can't get adopted out of your family. But sure enough, a month later, this car showed up and it was a moving van, and my friend left, and she left with this. Her mother gave her up so she could go and live with this wealthy other family, and she just vanished, and I never heard from her from, from her again. I remember asking everybody in the neighborhood, well, how could this happen? Where did she go? How could this happen? And the only thing people would tell me was because her mother was divorced. That's how things like this happen. And I remember Aww. thinking about that, thinking, oh, my God, this is really terrible, the kind of fear and anger people had for this woman just because she was different. And I I thought a lot about that. And so when I started writing Is This Tomorrow, it started out just being about, you know, this, this family and the girl who was adopted out. And then I pushed it back into the 1950s because I thought that was a more repressive era. Um, certainly there are other autobiographical things going on. Lewis, the boy who's really smart in school, but he doesn't often do that well, and his teachers don't seem to like him. That was me. I was, I was a really smart kid, but I just, I just didn't want to do a lot of the work. And a lot of it just bored me. And when I tried to go beyond where I was, I was always yelled at. I, I had a teacher call my parents in for a conference because they felt I was reading above my grade level. That was oh, very, very God. bad. They just, you know, they said, this has to stop. She, you know, she's making the other kids feel bad. And that just sort of set me off. And I would try to do little subversive things, much the way Lewis does. I never, I began to stop writing real book reports when, once I hit sixth grade. I would just make up a book and make up a book report to go with it because I felt that that was challenging for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, there's the whole the yearning that's in the book, the grief, the sense of loss. Those are all, you know, things that I think about a lot and that I deal with a lot. Um, and a way to heal them is to write about them, and that's why I do. Wow, wow. You know, that, that kind of reminds me of, um, you know, to take another <laughs> manifestation of the autobiographical, there's a, a healing thing that, that happens in the book, too, with not writing but other arts. Um, we've got the pies, <laughs> which mm-hmm. are so amazing, and I want to hear more about the pies, but, you know, <laughs> they... Um, you know, it's like the the baking and also the music show how art has that power to transform lives, how, you know, just having something to look forward to, something to create and be passionate about can just really change and shape your whole life. Do you look at that as being kind of a parallel to what happened to you with writing? Yep. 
Absolutely, absolutely. It was it was really important to me to have Ava have something that would make her creative. And, you know, she gets involved with this guy, Jake, who's a musician, and part of why she loves him is because he's so creative, he's so into the music, and the only way she can be a part of that is in a way that a typical 1950s woman is a part of any man's creative endeavor, which is she can put her head against his back and sort of feel the music through him. So when she starts baking pies in the 50s, baking pies is, that's an okay thing for a woman to do. But it's not an okay thing to do it outside of the confines for your family um, or for your husband. And she takes a step beyond where she actually is making money from doing something that's wildly (laughs) creative and wildly satisfying. And yet it's sort of of the 50s, but it's not really. It's more moving into women's liberation. And I loved that for her. I thought that was just the perfect job for her to do. Um, and you know, I just thought it, that it worked. It's such a definitive moment for me in the novel when she, like previously, as you said, she had been listening to him play and, um, you know, putting her head on his back and feeling the music and experiencing art through him. And then there comes that wonderful point in the novel when he's playing for her. She just thinks about her pies and she's no longer <laughs> thinking about it because the notes of the music are transforming into like the tones of the pies and she has to go bake. And then it, it, it turns out he's sitting in the kitchen watching her bake instead of her sitting yep. and listening to him play. Um, and that's when she, it, it's a great transformation because she she begins to define herself through her gifts instead of through her relationships, right? Right, right, exactly, exactly. And it's a very modern thing to do. And I think that, I mean, for me, writing saved my life. I just, you know, I was able to, you know, explore all these things that were going on with me. And I, I've been writing since I was in fourth grade. And, you know, it helped me when I was lonely. At first it was something just to do, just to escape. Then it helped me to understand things. And then eventually it became a way to communicate with other people. Because I think when you dig down deep and you're willing to go to the dark places and unfold that on the page for other people, and sometimes other people, they... You know, when they see that you doing that you're doing it, it makes it less terrifying or traumatic for them. And then you have a connection with the larger world. And to me, that's that's really important. Do you mean when you say to do it for them? Do you mean that it's less terrifying for them to face those things in their own lives? To well, those? I mean, when I, I I mean in in my last my last novel before this picture of you involved um, an asthmatic child. And I had not wanted to write about asthma because I had a lot of shame about it because I was very, very sick as a child. And it was one of those things where I had just shut away. I thought, I'm never going to talk about it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want people to know that I had asthma because I was bullied and it was shameful and it just brought up all these horrible feelings. So when I started to write the book and this kid with asthma came up, there was something that I didn't want to write about, but it kept coming up and coming up and I thought, okay, maybe I should. And when I had to go on tour about the book and one of the things that I would talk about was, you know, how the asthma came into the book and that it had always been very shameful for me and I was really embarrassed about it, but I was going to write about it afterwards. Every single place I spoke, there were always people who would come up to me afterwards and say, I'm so glad that you wrote about asthma and that you said that 
because I had the same experience. I was bullied as a child. I still feel embarrassed about it. So in a way, they're being able to come up and talk to me about it made me feel that my being able to overcome that shame and that fear and to write about it was something that I could give to other people as well as to heal myself. Wow, that's just so, so wonderful. (laughs) I was actually (laughs) going to ask you about that, so I'm just so glad you brought that up. Um, And I do remember reading somewhere that as as a kid you had looked for books on asthma sort of to validate mm-hmm. your own experience with it and we're not able to really find any. Is that part of what prompted you to go ahead and, and write about it? Yep, they did. I, I used to beg the librarians and they, they would give me books, you know, about tuberculosis or you know, these 18th, 19th century novels where people had pleurisy, but there was never something about, you know, a young Jewish girl who had asthma. And I thought, well, I'm going to write that. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of write that for myself and try to validate myself and it would always be about, you know, an asthmatic girl who had a million dollars. So she could, you know, travel around the world or do all these great things and you know, and when I you know, it wasn't until I wrote pictures of you that I really started writing about the truth of that, about what it feels like to be a child and to have this, you know, terrible disease, chronic disease where you can't breathe and you feel like you're strangling and you don't know when it's going to come next and you're always worried, what if you have an asthma attack and people make fun of you. And the more I wrote about it, it actually took me four years to write that book and in those four years, I did not have a single asthma attack. And I started to think, oh, maybe I'm healing myself by writing about it. And unfortunately, when I turned the book in, the asthma came back. But it never came back. It never came back as badly. And the wonderful thing about it was that in writing about all the shame, it healed the shame. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like, well, that was my childhood, and I'm really sorry I had to go through that. And yes, I still have asthma, but it's just a disorder. It's just part of me. It doesn't have to define me. And there's certainly no reason to feel shame about it. So I almost feel that in writing about it, that became my message, that you can heal your shame by writing about it. And if you can't write about it, by just taking a look at it, just putting it out there diffuses a lot of the pain of it. You know, you've been so generous about sharing things that um, that people do often try to hide, <laughs> you know, whether it's <laughs> asthma or um, also I've, I've seen you on some other interviews where you've talked about um, the difficulties that you've had in making a career for yourself as a writer and even oh, yeah. how um, tough your your first writing workshop was with you um, oh. and the rejections that you got. And, and it's true. I mean, reading this, I think, is good for people, you know, to just see that yes, you can experience these things and, and go on and be happy and be really successful and, you know, have all these great things. So I just thank you for, for sharing those things. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, but it's it's not just for other people. It's also it's also for me, too, because I, I really, I thought you get really tired after a while of always having to hide what you feel ashamed of or having to make yourself out 
you know, better than you are or, or any number of things that people do. And it, there's something incredibly liberating about coming out and saying, you know, yeah, I'm a New York Times bestseller, but I had nine failed books before I got there. And, you know, there were times when nobody would take my phone calls or my emails or, you know, even want to speak to me about anything. And so I sort of feel like, well, it's important to know that because then you know that, well, any moment things can change. So if you're in a bad place, any moment it can change to a good place. And it just makes it more real and more human, and I always think that's a good thing. You know, it, it is, and I, I have a question for you. I don't know if you can answer it, but I can ask anyway, and maybe you can. <laughs> um, <but laughs> you know, I, I think it's so easy to say, you know, we, we all have had parents and teachers and all kinds of people tell us, you know, have faith in yourself, don't give up, you can do it. Um, but a lot of people don't, and you have, and, and I guess what I want to know is how, <laughs> you know, because you're a perfect example of someone who continued on through so many challenges. And, um, I mean, how did you do that? Where, where did you find that strength, and how would you advise someone else to do that? Um, it's really hard. I think I partly how I found the strength was in uh, it was sort of a reaction against my family growing up. Um, my mother always believed that terrible things were going to happen any moment. <laughs> so you oh, should well. worry about them. And because if you worried about them, then whatever happened probably wouldn't be as bad as what you were worrying about. And she also cautioned me about aiming too high, that, you know, you don't want to risk anything. You want to sort of stay small. And when I turned 17, I guess it was part of being rebellious. I just determined that I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to go out and risk and and see what happened. And I was just desperate to have a different kind of life. So that's sort of what I did. And, it you know, it took a whole lot of trial and error and, uh, you know, a lot of magical thinking to to get to that place. Um, in, in terms of advising other people, I think the important thing to know is that everyone is scared all the time, no matter what they no matter what they tell you, you know, or no matter how successful they are. Everyone has a story that you're not seeing and most of it involves being afraid. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be successful. Just about everybody I know on the planet worries about money and what if somebody you love dies or this stuff. And everybody is really good about hiding those fears. And yet I think that it's those fears that can create connection between people and that you can build off of. If you just admit to yourself, you know what, I really want to, you know, I really want it to be a successful writer, but I didn't know how I was going to do it, and I was afraid all the time. So I just sort of made a list of what I thought I could do that wouldn't make me afraid. And at first, that list was very small. I mean, the list started out with, well, I can, I'm too afraid to talk to agents in person, but maybe I can email them. And so I would start that way, or it would be, well, I'm too afraid to publish a novel, but maybe I can start small with 
with stories, and then I would start small with stories. And then after I published a few stories, I thought, well, maybe now I can make the next step. So I think it's a matter of being really gentle with yourself and taking things really baby steps with what you can do in terms of risking it and just realizing that, you know, everybody that you're afraid of is afraid on some level too. I mean, we're all people. We're all people. And there's there's no reason not to try to go after what you think will make you happy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, I can't even tell you when you said everybody's afraid all the time. I just felt like, <laughs> ah. Like I don't know why that would be so comforting, but it is. <laughs> They are, they are. I went to a I went to a public a, a party that my publisher Algonquin threw and I was meeting all these writers who I love and I just had too much wine to drink and I was just asking them, So are you afraid? And every single one of them said, Yes, I'm afraid, I'm terrified all the time And the thing is as soon as they said that it made them it made me it made me love them more because they mm-hmm. seem so human to me. And I think it just developed more of a connection between us because we were just being really honest. Mm, that's nice. Well, um, okay, so I'm going to go back to some of the other big issues. Um, and uh, one thing is that you said that you're a big believer in throwing stones at your characters. And... Oh. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's there's some. I'm a big story structuralist. Um, I I'm like if I'm going to drive from Boston to California, I know that I'm reaching California. I have to know that, and how I get there can sort of be muddy. But in terms of story structure, there's something called the negation of the negation, and it means that you try to make things as bad as possible for your characters because that's how they reveal themselves. It's when, if you think to your own life, the times when you've had the most trauma, that's usually when you learn or when you change because you're sort of forced to. If you're happy, you just want to stay happy. There's no reason to change. You're just sort of in that moment of bliss. So I always think in terms of, well, how do you make things worse? So say you have a story of a woman and she's about to get married and the groom doesn't show up. Well, that's bad, but what's worse? Yeah. So what's, yeah, what's worse would be, well, say you're about to get married, the groom doesn't show up, and then you discover he ran off with your best friend. Well, that's oh. what's worse. What's worse than that? Well, what if he ran off with your father? That's even worse. And you just sort of take it to the, to the most terrible point because that's when the characters will be forced to make choices and grow and change and that's also when it's more involving for the reader. Everybody loves reading about when characters are in trouble. When they're happy, it's just sort of, you know, it's nice for a moment, and then we get impatient. You know, there's a great paradox at work here that's really interesting to me because on the one hand, we're talking about um, <laughs> about giving the characters all of this trouble, and at the same time, you know, I'm hearing you say, or I'm, I'm reading from what you're saying, that um, the both reading and writing have been kind of like a sanctuary for you when <laughs> things have been hard in your life. And I know they have been for me and for so many other people. So this is just such an interesting thing to me. I mean, it's not contradictory at all, <laughs> but no. it feels like it would be. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> It, it does feel so. I mean, I always say if I couldn't write, I'd probably 
you know, I need intensive psychotherapy every day <laughs> because it's it's also it's much easier to sort of be one person removed from the conflict. I can sort of give my problems to a character and let them work <laughs> it out, and then it sort of works out for me subconsciously. But I don't have to really, you know, be in the thick of it as much. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well. Um... <laughs> Speaking of throwing stones, um, one of the, the big things that I noticed and is this tomorrow was the, the issue of abandonment. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, several of the characters are abandoned in all kinds of different ways. And I was just wondering about how you came to be concerned with this issue. I mean, really, it's, it's more than a stone. It's like ricocheting shrapnel or something, you know, it's my core issue. I mean, every writer has a core issue. I mean, I grew up in a family where, I mean, I had a father, but I didn't really have a father. He sort of was this moody, sulky, angry guy, and he was never home, and he never really had much to do with me. And, you know, most mm-hmm. studies now know how important a father is to the development of a young girl, so I had no father. And it changed a lot of my relationships when I went out dating because I was I was so desperate for love and acceptance that I would take it from whoever gave it to me. And usually it was the kind of guys who would abandon me. They, they would fulfill my greatest expectations. Um, so I thought, you know, a whole lot about that, about why... You know, why might I had to build up a, a sense of self so I would feel that I was not likely to be abandoned because there was enough of me there that somebody might want to be with me. But it's still, you know, like all issues that you have when you're a kid growing up, it still sort of stays in me and haunts me. And I always think about it and I always worry, like, well, what's going to happen? Or what if I'm alone? What will I do? And it's just, You know, it's something that I try to work out with writing. I mean, all of my characters worry about being abandoned. They're all haunted. And none of them has come up with a solution for it yet. (laughs) No, but, you know, Ava deals with it very well um, with the pies, for one thing. And then also really liked the way she dealt. I I mean, of course, um, her son has the most uh, to deal with regarding abandonment. But, you know, she... She kind of has this realization that that he's leaving, you know, her son is leaving. I mean, she handles that so well, and, and when he does leave, she just kind of says, well, you know, he's an adult, this is always coming, um, you know, and so I, I don't know, I was impressed with her and how she handled it. I loved her. I loved Ava. I wanted her to be my best friend. <laughs> um, I know. She was just, yeah, she was just this amazingly strong, resilient woman who was really trying to do her best and who discovered herself through that. And I think in the end that she has this life. She created this great life for her where she doesn't need men in her life. If, if um, You know, if one comes along, that's great. But it, it's not it's not going to be the thing that's going to make her happy. She has this career. She has this. She has the cafe, and you know she has her son, whom she deeply loves, um, who will eventually you know come back to her. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, okay, so this is a totally 
silly question, but I have to ask, did you make any of the pies? <laughs> you know what? I'm a terrible cook. I'm a terrible cook. Really? I did not. I did not. I found um, this, this wonderful pie baker named Gail Gans, who's in Chicago. She's, um, she's a famous chef. And I asked if I could speak to her, and she said yes. And she's the one who gave me all the great details. She, I spoke to her for an hour or so, and she told me about how you know, it's very important to have cold hands. That makes a good pie. And she mm-hmm. told me about you know, the way the crust looks. That's a signature, and that's really important. And she gave me all these great recipes, and I never, I never made them because of a wow. terrible cook. <laughs> wow, but the recipes are just, so unusual and amazing, like the plum cinnamon and you know I mean they're very oh, that was Gail. That was that was all that was all Gail Gail, not me. Um I just or sometimes I threw in something that I thought sounded delicious but I didn't really know whether it would be delicious. <laughs> but um I'm not a cook. Wow. Well, I know that wasn't the only thing you researched either, um, and it sounds like your your methods were kind of interesting. Weren't you, like, posting on Facebook and <laughs> sort of crowdsourcing? I was. I was. I couldn't, you know, I, I hired these two high school students to help me do the research, and they were they were good, but they weren't getting me the real stuff that I needed. So I hired a librarian who was great, but I wanted to talk to people. So I put the word out in Facebook saying, is there anybody here who was a male nurse in the 60s? Or I need to talk to a cop from the 60s. And I got these amazing people who gave me, they gave me the kind of detail that you can't find in books. I mean, the guy who was a male nurse told me about, you know, that doctors used to smoke when they examined their patients, even if the patients had pneumonia and not only that they would encourage their patients to smoke too because back then in the 50s they felt that smoking would relax you <laughs> and uh, you know it was it was just bizarre and I you know I talked to a cop who told me that in the 50s they had no amber alerts and kids pretty much ran wild back then so if a child was missing they would treat it the same way they would have missing adult which meant that they'd wait 48 hours. And for a child, that's, that's way too late. You have to get right on it immediately. So I did do, I immersed myself in all of the research. I found these great vintage pamphlets about communism and what people thought about it in the 50s, including this great thing from Life magazine, which was an article on how you can tell if your neighbor is a communist. And it was this very serious article. And it said one of the ways you could tell was if, if your neighbor read a lot of books, then chances are <laughs> your neighbor was a communist. I know. And the second way was, you know, if your neighbor uses a lot of multi-syllabic words that you don't understand, chances are he's a communist. So there was this incredible paranoia going on about anybody who seemed just the slightest difference. difference. And I just thought that it was fascinating. It, the whole period just, I just enmeshed myself in all of it. It was so much fun. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, um, we we only have a few minutes left, so I'm just going to ask a couple more questions. Um, I think one thing that everybody would really, really like to know is how you are so prolific. I mean, it's just like you're doing things that are overlapping other things and putting out of these novels and articles and interviews. And, and you know, how do you <laughs> – 
It's a disease. It's a disease. I'm obsessive compulsive. But on top uh-huh. of that, I've always felt when I was little and I was so sick, I always felt, what if I don't live very long? How am I going to do all the stuff that I want to do? And I always sort of feel, you know, I don't have that feeling anymore that I'm not going to live very long. But I still have that feeling that. I have to do everything because if I don't do it right away, what if it doesn't get done? Or, you know, what if I miss my chance? So my brain is always sort of churning this in this obsessive, compulsive way. And I found that the best way to handle it is to always be doing a lot of work and doing a lot of different things. And I always sort of run the risk of doing way too much. Um, I've actually taken steps about that. I decided this year that... I was not going to write screenplays anymore. That's just one thing I'm going to cut off from my list of stuff to do so I won't make myself so crazy. But it's, it's, I don't recommend it to anybody. It's just sort of the way that my mind works. And mm-hmm. I've really tried to make it less so, but I haven't been very successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's good for everyone else anyway because we get the fruits. <laughs> so, um, well, I want to ask you a question about your process. And um, basically, when I was reading this this tomorrow, I really appreciated your attention to detail. And, um, for instance, uh, before Jimmy goes missing, you you plant this garden of seeds in the reader's mind because there's like a map that he and another kid were making to travel across the country. There's a strange man lurking around the neighborhood. There's all this stuff so that when he goes missing, it could be any of these different things. And, you, you know, depending on what you were thinking when you were reading it, you could kind of latch on to any of them. And so it, it just, it feels so seamlessly woven. But what I wonder is what that process is like for you in the writing. Like, do you do those things unfold for you in the actual order of narration, or do you go back and plant some of those seeds later, or, or how does that work when you're structuring the story? I um I I pretty much know everything. I'm a big story structuralist. I um I had a, a student at one of the courses I taught tell me about John Truby's story structure and how it could work for novels. And John Truby mostly does story structure for screenplays. And I, I, you know, I thought this is kind of stupid, but I went and I looked at it and it's, it's absolutely changed my life. He builds stories in terms of not three-act structure, which is very artificial, but more in terms of the moral choices that a character makes along the journey. So you see the character making these moral choices and going after a specific goal and how he changes in a very deep and thematic way from the beginning to the end. So before I even start writing, I spend about six months writing a really detailed sort of synopsis of what I think the novel is going to be and Ah. how I think it's going to unfold. And I have all those beats in there. And of course, as I write, it changes. And I, you know, I rip up the synopsis and I rewrite it about 40 different times. But the basic (laughs) idea of who the character is morally and how they change over the course of the story, that stays the same. So when I started this tomorrow, I, I knew how it was going to start. I knew what happened to Jimmy. And I knew everything I sort of knew the end, but not really. I originally had a different end. Um, 
but I knew that they were going to find out what happened to Jimmy. So that was that was my end point. So therefore, I could sort of fill as I did the revisions of each revision, I could go back and sort of fill in the blanks. But I do a tremendous amount of work beforehand. Oh wow, that's that's very um, inspiring. <laughs> and you said I didn't know the name of of the person, John. What is the na- the last name? Oh, it's John. It's John Truby, T R U B Y. Um, okay. He has he offers story structure classes on um, on the online that people can take, and he also does them in he also does them in real time, which is really helpful. And I also am a big fan of. Uh, Lisa Crone, C-R-O-N, she does something for called Wired for Story, which uses brain science about the way we respond to stories in order to tell stories. And the final person I use is the screenwriter, uh, Jeff Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, who um, he mentors people in terms of structure. And I never write my novels until I've shown him my synopsis and he like, tears them apart. And then we talk about it and we figure it out. And then I sort of know basically what to do. And then once I start writing, then it's all like, creative and out there and chaos. And, but there's still that skeleton underneath that's solid. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> that's great. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so just in closing, um, I'd love to know what you're working on now and if you have any other publications or events coming up that you'd like to announce and, and maybe if you just want to tell your website so that people can find you easily. Okay. Well, I have my next novel, which is called Cruel, Beautiful World. is coming up from Algonquin probably in 2015. I'm still writing it. Um, yeah. It's about. <laughs> it's set in the 1970s at that time when the peace and love movement of the 60s started to turn ugly with the Mansons and Altamans and all that. And it's, it's about a murder. Um, and I will be in California at the end of this month. And uh, all the details are in, on my website, which is www.carolinelevitt.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It Thank has been you. a pleasure talking to you, and I love your writing, and I appreciate your generosity and openness. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. This was just great. I love talking to you. Uh, I loved it, too. Hopefully, we'll have another opportunity. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) Good night. Good night. Before we close, I'd like to remind our listeners that at our website, toveradjournal.com, you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of Tavera Journal, and find out about upcoming events, such as Hay House's San Francisco Writers' Workshop, which is March 22nd through 24th, with Doreen Virtue, Reed Tracy, and Nancy Levin. While you're at the site, be sure to also check out the new Tavera Talk book, It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of the Ferret Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website where we offer free copy monthly through our giveaway. I'd like to thank Ferret publisher Donna Bear Stein, producer and associate editor R.J. Jeffries, and contributing editor and assistant producer Udo Hintz for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. Our next interview will be with artist Alexandra Eldridge later in the month. 
we hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. Until then, goodbye.